Hey, how's it going, guys? Oh, is that so loud? Uh, yeah, hey, thanks for tuning in. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Today on the show, uh, well, I don't know. I'll try to persuade you to be anti-war just like every day. Uh, I don't know if we're going to have any guests. Uh, I had busy stuff going on this morning. I wasn't able to send out my invites until just about a half an hour ago. But I sent out six of them for three spots, so, you know, I don't know, maybe. But it's Monday and short notice and all that, so, you know, I don't know. It is what it is. We'll see what happens. But I got tons of uh, bad news to complain about. No problem there. As far as, you know, content, time to fill. I can do that. Uh, first of all, the good news is that Daniel Larison's going to be on the show tomorrow to talk about the Republicans. Daniel Larison, uh, chief peacenik over there at the American Conservative Magazine, where they oppose the empire from the right. The great Daniel Larison, and uh, we'll be talking about the Republicans. So that'll be good. And then, uh, yeah, man, uh, Arlo, no, that's a different note to myself or something else. Uh, Nebosa Malic. Nebosa Malic. I don't know how to say his name right, but I think it's something like that. I'm trying to get him for today, but maybe tomorrow. So we can get a good Ukraine update. Apologies all around. I've been slipping on covering the Ukraine issue. I mean, the good news is that there hasn't been that much killing compared to how it was. So, you know, but still very important stuff going on there. America's uh, coup d'etat, junta, having lots of troubles. I don't know. I think that the president's call for the no confidence vote was a preemptive move. Oh, yeah, I read a thing like that. Didn't I tell you guys that? It was a preemptive thing because if you call for no confidence and he survives it now, then you can't call for no confidence again until July. Can't have another vote until July. And so maybe they saw the momentum building and they decided to let the pressure out, you know, before it was too late. Yats is the guy that USA picked to be the prime minister of Ukraine. If you don't know what Ukraine is, it's basically Russia's Canada. So think about it like uh, if Russia had been caught doing a coup d'etat and overthrowing the government of Canada. So they could put a Russia-friendly guy in there. What do you think America would do about that? What do you think the Canadians would do about that? Anyway, all analogies break down at some point, but I think you see what I mean. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to try to get Nabochsonalic back on the show to talk about that. And then the other good news is I talked to my server guy today. Well, there's good news and bad news there. Um, he got some of the pieces of the server, but the motherboards and the cases, they kept uh, saying they're going to ship them, and then they keep not shipping them, so he had to cancel that order and get them from somebody else. So... But he said the backup has been done, so that's nice. And uh, very soon we'll have the, the brand new servers in order completely, uh, thanks to you guys and all of your help there for that. And then all this stuff about the website going down and the 
podcast feed being broken and all this will be a thing of the past. Have some nice 2016 model badass servers to last us another, you know, hopefully 10 years or something, I bet. Maybe. I hope. And anyway, so that's all good. And we were having a problem with the weekend interview show files not working. Um, I think the only time this probably came up was in December when we were talking about Star Wars. And I was saying, yeah, you guys go uh, listen to my thing on the prequels if you want. And then, but you couldn't because the dang thing didn't work. But it turned out the files weren't missing. The files are all there. It was a matter of the permissions, man. The folder, it wasn't configured right. But so now, if you go to weekendinterviewshow.com, blam, it's all there. Perfect again. It had been a wreck, that page. And so many of those files broken. But now if you go back to uh, weekendinterviewshow.com, you'll find a bunch of stuff from 2004 and five there. And including my Star Wars episodes. Uh, when I, it, I was still as, as bad as I could be deliberately. I was in denial about the uh, horror of the prequels just because I love the politics of it so much. Man, if, if only I had directed the prequels. Oh, how different and, uh, how much better they could have been. And everybody hates the politics, but that's the best part, just not the way they explained it, by showing everybody debating in the Congress where, you know, two-thirds of the audience has no idea what anybody's even talking about, dude. That's not how you do it. You just have Obi-Wan explain to Anakin what's going on. That's it. You don't. They didn't show the parliament in the first Star Wars when the Emperor suspended the Senate permanently. They just had one general brag about it to another. Had the Grand Moff say, oh, the Senate, yeah, we don't have to worry about them anymore. And so something big happened, and it was just one throwaway line explained it all. They could have, you know, yeah. But the whole politics of how the Empire became the Empire, I don't know. Anyway, if you want to hear my take on it, right before Episode 3 came out in 2005, when I was still in full anticipation mode for uh, for Episode 3, uh, that's all there now at, oh, and, and, uh, you can hear my interview with Mark Thornton about it too, uh, cause he had written all about it as well. That's all, uh, at weekendinterviewshow.com. And then I guess the, the Philip Drew interviews, uh, at philipdrew.com, I guess they were always there too. So there's, boy, that's back in the days now, man. Chaos Garage, 2003 and 4. Anyway, so there you go, man. Anybody who was looking for 2004 and 5 stuff and it was broken and you couldn't get it, now it's there again. Oh, you know what? I wonder if it just podcasted out a bunch of those damn things. No, because I guess the blog entries were already there. The blog entries were posted at my site. Just the links were broken, right? Better join up the chat room. Someone in the chat room, wait till I join up the damn thing and then tell me, check your podcast feed. And let me know if, uh, if I just sent you a bunch of interviews from 2005. Hey, you can listen to failed libertarian presidential candidate Gary Nolan. Talk about how, well, we can't leave the war now, dude, because then things might get worse or <laughs> something stupid like that, I'm sure he said. Let's see here. Yeah. What a mess, Chatzilla, man. You gotta type in so much stuff here. Um you know what? I don't need to do that. 
Let's go to scotthorton.org slash chat. I'll just break this window off somewhere and it'll be great. Uh, you too can join up the chat room. Just go to scotthorton.org slash chat. You don't need a chatzilla or external chat application. Um, so that's good. I got that going for me. And, uh, so then I can ask my chat room guys, what the hell? Did I just podcast you a bunch of 10 year old interviews? That's the question. 11, 12 year old interviews. Hey guys, how's it going? Good morning. Thank God the music is going to start playing and save us all from the rest of this segment continuing on. Uh, when we get back, I will say thanks again for everybody who uh, donated and helped support uh, toward the matching funds, toward getting the new servers and all of that. And to everybody who ever donated to the Kickstarter for the YouTube project, that is going, too. That's a huge part of this. Had to get um, the server configured and fixed. Get that project up and running. Uh, when we get back, I got a bunch of bad news to cover. I'm going to say thanks again, and then I'm going to tell you about uh, Libya and other bad stuff. And maybe have some interviews. I don't know. We'll see. Scott Horton Show. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. This part of the Scott Horton Show is sponsored by audible.com. And right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Scott Horton Show, you can get your first audiobook for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State, The Cold War Origins of the Military-Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought The War State in paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. Get the free audio book of The War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Scott Horton Show. Hey, man, here's a real true quote of a guy that I know. There was a war in Libya? When? He didn't even know about it. And the thing is, I'm not calling the guy stupid. I mean, he's the kind of guy who obviously is not that interested in politics, doesn't watch the news and keep up with that kind of thing. Who watches the news? He doesn't read it. He's got his own life, got a job, got a family, got priorities, doesn't pay much attention. But you would think that everyone would know if we had a war. We had a war. And he didn't even say, oh, yeah, I guess I kind of do remember that. No, he hadn't heard it. And, of course, the reason why is basically partisanship, right? Republicans don't like giving Democrats credit for killing people. Quote, unquote, credit from their point of view. And all the Obamaites, basically, if they couldn't find themselves cheerleading for it and calling it humanitarianism, they just basically looked away. They didn't talk about it. There was no controversy. Wasn't like Lyndon Johnson bombing Vietnam, but yet young uh, new leftists are out in the street protesting against them, even though they're Democrats. Not like that. In fact, I guess partisanship against Nixon probably helped the anti-war movement a lot after 68, right? But um, 
anyway, uh, that's the dynamic of the Obama years, is the liberals just don't want to talk about it. The Republicans uh, don't want to give him credit for doing what it is that they would have him do. And so you can have an actual war against a country like Libya and have people not even know that it happened, much less why it happened or what's the big deal or what were the consequences. So here we are five years later. U.S. scrambles to contain growing ISIS threat in Libya, reads the New York Times. And it's about special forces missions on the ground in Libya to get the bad guys. And they provide a little bit of the context here, but not really. And, of course, um, over the weekend, uh, where the hell is my headline? Uh, the U.S. killed 49 people in an attack on a Libya base. They say the... Tunisia commander of ISIS was likely killed. Yeah, I don't know. Even if it is true that uh, it was, you know, all combatants, you know, so-called ISIS combatants there. Uh, or something like that. Doesn't mean that hitting them is worth the consequences of it. At this point. I mean, would you hire the American Empire to take care of a terrorist problem for you right now? The exterminator who is the guy who introduced the bugs into your house in the first place? So anyway, um, America's at war in Libya again. And it's because of the consequences of the Libya war from the last time. And it's amazing, right? I think we've gotten off really lucky, guys. All my predictions were, well, it's going to go completely to hell as soon as Qaddafi and the state is gone. This is a simple question. Hey, Margulies, uh, once Qaddafi's gone, will the state of Libya still be a thing? Margulies, no, Scott Horton, it will not. Okay, so the whole place is going to go absolutely to hell as everybody goes to civil war to fight over the power. Uh, to fight to create a new state. And as soon as some suicide bombs start going off, which we know America's taken, we've known all along, 2011, from the very beginning that America has taken the side of the Al-Qaeda guys. And as soon as some truck bombs start going off, some suicide attacks start going off, then uh, America's going to have to invade and create an army, build it up, purple-fingered elections for pretended democratic ratification, and then, what, tell me Obama's going to be reluctant to do that? It's a fait accompli. There's no choice but to do that because there's going to be nothing but violence. And from a public relations point of view, the empire can't just let it fester. And yet I was wrong. They let it fester for five years. Well, four years after destroying the place. They didn't invade. They had some training going on. They got attacked and they fled. And I'm not talking about the attack on the... On the Benghazi thing, I'm talking about the Special Forces training mission near Tripoli. Where they took off and got the hell out of there and called that thing off. Obama was not willing to double, triple, quadruple down and, you know, basically invade and build a giant base and start building a new state there. He just refused to do it. 
I guess he's decided now he can start up the war now and he'll be gone before anybody's got to see about any uh, long-term plans for what the hell they're supposed to do with the middle part of North Africa now. But you can find it in the archives, man, 2011. I said it. We're going to be there for 20 years, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Thank God I was wrong that it was all going to start by the end of the year. Um, but now here we are. We got not just al-Qaeda guys, not just Ansar al-Sharia and al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb and, uh, you know, whatever, Jayshaw, whatever the hell over there. Um, now we got the Islamic State the meanest uh, brand name franchise in Terror Incorporated. So, off we go. It's interesting, you know, the best I can tell, uh, General Ham of AFRICOM opposed the war in Libya. Supposedly, uh, you know, Robert Gates, he's such a scumbag. He is such a snake. You can ask Ray McGovern about what snake Robert Gates is. In his book, he says, I almost resigned over it, which I think is probably true, but it still just goes to show what a snake he is, that he would almost resign over it, but then instead continue on as the Secretary of War implementing the war. Jeez, I'm so opposed to this, but what am I going to do? Resign? Hell no. I'll kill people. That's my job. Let's do it. He went ahead and did it anyway. And then he wrote in his book, Yeah, but absolve me because I almost resigned. Piece of crap. But it is apparently the case that he and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the National Security Advisor and everybody tried to stop Obama from doing it. And then Obama himself. Uh, i got to find my source for this, but I read it just the other day. Oh, it's at consortiumnews.com um, in a great piece that we ran at antiwar.com, in fact, about Libya where Obama is quoted saying that his decision to launch the war in Libya in 2011 was a 5149 decision. Can you imagine? I mean, that right there is basically a confession. That is a guilty plea to war crimes. He's saying, I decided to start a war. And I only just barely convinced myself to do it by 1%. That's the war crime of aggression for which Nazis were hanged by Americans at Nuremberg. Oh, sorry, that has a racial connotation, the lynching and whatever. Firing squad then, after a fair trial. And all this appeals exhausted. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. This nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone. We are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. 
and they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Robertson at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, y'all. Welcome back. Now, I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Well, I guess my email just must be broken because nobody's answering me back. After my very polite invitations that I sent out. But we still got some time to kill, so uh yeah, we'll see how it goes. But don't worry, I'm good on everything, so you don't really need interviews. I mean, I do. That's why I'm good on everything, because I get to ask all the follow-up questions myself. But anyway. So, the point is this. The dang commercial interrupted me before I got to the point. And the point is this. Hillary Clinton, man, she's the one. Something she said to Obama made him decide that, okay, it wasn't rice and power. They wanted it. But Hillary Clinton, she's the one who convinced Obama to make the call he made. That doesn't diminish his responsibility in any way. But, again, the fun thing about responsibility is it's not actually a quantity. It's a quality. And so you can divvy it out in non-mathematical ways. Like, uh, it's all her fault and it's all his fault. And it's all Sarkozy's fault. And it's all Cameron's fault. And it's all the executives at NBC News's fault. Think any one of the, or CNN or whatever, you think any one of these stations couldn't have stopped that war if they just told the truth to the people what the hell's going on over there? It's a lot of people's fault. But, especially Hillary's, she was the one who probably said something to Obama like, you gotta do this for me, because it was gonna be her big triumph that she was gonna ride into the presidency on. The good war, the war in Libya that worked out so well. What the hell was her plan? She met with some Chalabi in a hotel, and he told her, I promise it's going to be great, and that was it? That's what they say. That's her story. Is she met with, you know, what's his nuts, the former, you know, pretend prime minister of nothing for a little while. She met him at a at a hotel in France where he gave her the Chalabi line, and she bought it, and that was it. Hell, Chalabi had to work on the Republicans for years. She sat down, had a couple of drinks, said, yeah, let's do it. Well, I talked to this guy. His name was some guy. I forget. But anyway, he promised me that everything's going to work out great. And, uh, yeah, they had their nefarious interests involved. Uh, Hillary Clinton, I think. Uh, was very interested in the public relations of um, how bad America looked uh, with the overthrow of Mubarak next door in Egypt and said, no, we got to take the side of the little guy against somebody. And Gaddafi, Bush made a deal with him, but still, he's no Mubarak, right? It's not like we love him or anything. He's expendable. So we'll use this as an example of us opposing dictatorship. And then, of course, it was mostly European interests, I guess. Um, but I guess there must have been some American business interests involved in the oil, what have you. But like I said, as my best understanding is that the head of AFRICOM, who you would think would have the most incentive to support any new war under his authority, he was opposed to it. I think. 
That's what they say anyway. I don't know what really happened. Didn't resign over it. Went ahead and launched the damn thing. So it's not like I'm trying to give these guys any real credit, but just to go to to show you the professional warriors, just like with the war in Yemen. Remember we talked with um, the great reporter um, um, Mark Perry uh, writing for Al Jazeera, and he had that piece about the war in Yemen where the general's attitude was, look, they'll kill whoever. I mean, they like killing people. But they would much rather not be fighting on the side of Al-Qaeda. I mean, they will. <laughs> they'll, they'll fly as Al-Qaeda's Air Force in Yemen, and, and uh, you know, they'll train up and arm up Al-Qaeda's allies, at least, in Syria. And they'll fight an air war for Al-Qaeda in Libya. But they'll piss and moan about it. They'd much rather take the side of Iran. Like they're doing in Iraq against the jihadists right now. But, <laughs> anyway, I mean, you could see why, right? If you were a general, you'd be like, come on, really? Let's bomb these guys instead of those guys. Probably, as long as you get to bomb somebody, but, you know. Try to discriminate a little, right? But, yeah, so, uh yeah, it was Hillary Clinton. And at the time, it was her great victory. It was smart power. And just like with the Iraq War. As soon as the capital falls, they go, oh, it was a victory and you doubted us. Well, nobody doubted that the U.S. Army could take Baghdad. Nobody doubted that nine months of NATO air war and special forces on the ground would be able to eventually win a military victory against Gaddafi, who didn't even really have an army, but just his own kind of personal Gestapo, because he was too scared to have an army, might oppose him. Nobody doubted that. Call that a victory? Are you kidding? And then, we're actually running a piece, are we running on antiwar.com today or tomorrow? Oh, I gotta hit refresh on this thing. Um... We've got a piece. I approved a piece by Chris Ernesto. Uh, it's going to run tomorrow, I guess. Oh, yeah, Ron Paul came in late and bumped him. Um, but Ernesto's, or actually, you know what? That's just the highlights. Let me check the front page real quick and make sure. Ernesto, Ernesto, Ernesto. Okay, Ernesto's running tomorrow. And uh, his thing is all about Haftar, or Hiftar, however you pronounce it, the CIA's man there. And um, as he says... We don't really know exactly whether this guy is the CIA's guy there, but it seems pretty likely that after getting burned in Benghazi, they decided to switch back toward the, you know, secular military dictatorship type. And they're trying to make Haftar the new Qaddafi. But the problem is, I guess they're not giving him enough money and he doesn't inspire enough loyalty. And, you know, pretty hard to put Libya back together again. After what they did with it. And, of course, uh, I don't know, of course, but there's no such thing as Libya anyway. It was invented not after World War One even, but after World War Two, as a British sock puppet kingdom uh, before Qaddafi took it over. And so, historically, it was at least three pieces, the East, the West, and the South there. Um, and then there's all kinds of competing armed interests, Al-Qaeda types and otherwise. But yeah, you could see why from the point of view of the Empire, what a great opportunity they've created for themselves. Hey, 
Look at it this way, boys. If it doesn't work out, then great. We just keep bombing them anyway. What a great job it is being the government. Never have to say you're sorry. Never have to admit you're wrong. Just keep failing up and up and up and up. It's great. It's just, you know, it's simply the economics of state monopoly power. You can't fire them. Remember after September 11th? I think even a couple people, maybe even on TV, said, well, look, maybe we should abolish the FBI entirely and create some new agency instead. That was a lot of the pressure for the Department of Homeland Security. I remember Peter Lance, who uh, he wrote a couple of great books about al-Qaeda, two or three of them. And I remember he, at the time, before... Um, before the Department of Homeland Security came into being, he supported it and reluctantly. And he said, you know, listen, I don't want any new police agencies for Americans and whatever. You know, I just I just don't. But my faith in the FBI to protect us just does not exist. And really, his books were mostly from the point of view of you know, FBI field agent sources complaining about their bosses. That He wrote two or three books from the point of view of FBI cops complaining about their bosses. And he was just saying, well, somebody's got to protect us and it ain't going to be them. But no, they just get more and more power, more and more authority over you and me, of course. It's the same with the military and the spies overseas. Hey, Al Scott here. Ever wanted to help support the show and own silver at the same time? Well, a friend of mine, libertarian activist Arlo Pignati, has invented the alternative currency with the most promise of them all. QR Silver Commodity Discs. The first ever QR code, one-ounce silver pieces. Just scan the back of one with your phone and get the instant spot price. They're perfect for saving or spending at the market. And anyone who donates $100 or more to The Scott Horton Show at scotthorton.org slash donate gets one. That's scotthorton.org slash donate. And if you'd like to learn and order more, send them a message at CommodityDiscs.com or check them out on Facebook at slash CommodityDiscs. And thanks. Hey, all Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday. And The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. All right, you guys. Welcome back. I'm Scott. And this is my show. This is Scott Horton Show. Anti-war radio. All right, man. Um... Yeah, so, oh, cool. Yeah, uh, we got to talk a little bit of politics here. So, I'm really torn about Jeb Bush dropping out on one hand. Ha ha, you lost, you suck, everybody hates you, and you're a terrible candidate. And, hope you hit your elbow really hard on something. Pathetic loser Jeb Bush. On the other hand, I'm really going to miss Trump picking on him. Um, I felt like Bill Hicks that night, um, watching my Twitter feed where he's talk. well, his was the focus group for basic instinct, but still same thing. Boy, is my thumb not on the pulse of America, man. I just don't see things the same way you guys do. 
Trump picking on Jeb Bush was the best part of this whole thing. I'm only disappointed at where it had to stop. And yes, okay, it's because I'm childish and uh, my sense of humor, you know, I have an arrested development, I guess, when it comes to that kind of thing. But not really, I mean, only sort of kind of, because the fun of it was we all hate bullies, right? We hate seeing a big, tough, macho guy pick on some weak, pathetic nerd with glasses. Come on, man. Don't be like that, right? But then it's Jeb Bush. <laughs> it's so great. Uh, the My only regret is that they, you know, he didn't stay in one more debate at least to give Trump a chance to tell him, why don't you go home and do my dishes? And then uh, I'll tell you what, make me a sandwich and bring me a cold beer and give me a foot rub, Jeb. Rub my feet, I said. That's what I wanted to see. I said rub my feet. You know, probably you probably wouldn't have to tell him more than once anyway. Jeb would come over there, okay, Donald, and get down and do it. And there just ain't nothing more entertaining in the whole wide world uh, to me than seeing... A bush treated that way by anyone. Can you imagine? Someone treating a bush the way they deserve to be treated all the time. <sighs> it really, yeah. I mean, seeing him lose and, and leave, that's good too. But honestly, I'm going to miss it more than, more than I'm, I'm relieved to see him go. It could have, you know. It could have been very different, right? If he was even a little bit better at campaigning, it would be Rubio dropping out and Jeb would still be the establishment guy. But he's just the worst in the world at this. Unbelievable how bad he was. Anyway, so thank God for that. Now, his son is a politician, land commissioner here in Texas, which means he very well could be governor one day. God help us. These Bushes. I wonder if anybody at a public thing has ever asked George P. Bush, Hey man, why don't you get a job? What is it about you Bushes that you think that you all deserve to be on the public payroll and have political power over our lives? Why don't you work for a living, George? And leave us the hell alone. So sick of these people. Goddamn bushes. Anyway, so um, I wonder, I guess Trump probably is just going to bully Hillary from here on out, right? He's just going to pick on her. And he's just going to call her a criminal, and it's going to stick, because it's true. You know, he'll say something like, Hey, I built a great business. Hillary Clinton is a criminal. Not only... Is she wrong about everything? And not only does she make horrible decisions all the time, like supporting the Iraq war, <laughs> but she's a criminal. And they said the other day, so what do you think about Bernie Sanders? He goes, ah, I don't think Bernie Sanders really stands a chance unless Hillary gets indicted, <laughs> which is possible, however unlikely. It is within the realm of mathematical and literal possibility 
Uh, but not political possibility, of course. But um, she's got a 30-year history of bribery and corruption and laughing at the little girl that uh, she helped get his uh, uh, her rapist off back when she was a lawyer. Have you guys heard that clip of her cackling? Oh, yeah, I made up all this crap, and I brought in this expert from New York to try to discredit the proof and all this stuff. And, in fact, the victim, the child rape victim, uh, gave an interview to Josh Rogan in the Daily Beast. He wrote all about it, how Hillary Clinton destroyed her life, the defense that she put on uh, for her rapist. She was a 12-year-old girl, I think. And uh, And it's not just that, hey, listen... I did my solemn duty as a defense attorney. Everybody deserves the defense. The state must be made to prove their case. That's it. You know, I had to do what I had to do. But no, she's like, ah, ha, 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 about it. Like the horrifying beast that she is. And, you know, not like there's anything surprising about that, but it is what it is. Anyway, I just think Trump is going to mop the floor with Hillary Clinton. I've been saying this for a long, long time, that, you know, Hillary obviously has the ability to strong arm the others in power, that it's my turn, I get to be the one. and then, nah. But for them to cope with their dissonance by convincing themselves that she actually is a good candidate, and I don't know what other, what other Democratic candidates they could have field. There must be a governor or a senator somewhere they could have run. But she is just horrible, man. And I would just be absolutely astonished if she could beat Trump. No way. I think he can appeal to the Reagan Democrats. You know, the blue-collar worker Democrats, they'll vote for Trump before they vote for her. And, uh, yeah, she'll just self-destruct. I don't know whether he'll um, really turn on Rubio and Cruz. I think he they're so far behind, man. Uh, he can probably just let them fight. Let's see what happens with that. There's Kasich is still in there. He didn't have a prayer either. But, um, yeah, anyway, man, I think it's a done deal for Trump. And, yeah, it's true for years. I said, yeah, when until Jeb comes. Just wait till Jeb is the one and whatever. And the thing is, is I was totally right about that. If you counted all the Republican senators and governors... And those are the rules. You got to be a governor or a senator to run for president. That's basically it. You know, Ron was a member of the House of Representatives when he ran. And you get, you know, outsiders like Herman Cain or Carly Fiorina, but that doesn't really count, right? You got to be a governor or a senator to be the president. But that doesn't count the black swan, Donald Trump, coming in and just saying, I'm going to be on TV all day, every day for the next year and a half till I win. Watch and just doing it. He completely wrecked him. And and look how easy it was for him to wreck Jeb Bush. Jeb, you're weak and you're pathetic. Hey, everybody, doesn't he seem weak to you? And that was it, right? That was it. And Jeb's like, duh, duh, I am not. Oh, come on, don't say that. And he's done. Cooked. Oh, pretty fun. Uh, oh, yeah, and then so on the Democrat side... Man, Bernie really needed Nevada. And maybe there are some other states where he can pick up some delegates, but I don't, you know, he's not going to be supported very well in the South. It would be amazing if he could uh, turn out support in the South and beat Hillary Clinton on Super Tuesday. That's her, you know, huge advantage there. 
Um, and so here's the, all the reasons why, uh, that I can think of off the top of my head in a minute and a half, uh, why Sanders can't pull off what Barack Obama did in pushing Hillary Clinton aside and being the outsider and securing the nomination. The first thing was Obama never was an outsider at all. Now, Sanders, obviously, it's very debatable just how outsider he is, but Obama never was. Obama was recruited by the leadership, at least a significant part of the leadership of the Democratic Party in 2004. They were the anti-Clinton faction and the leaders of the Democrats who said, we want someone else and we really liked your speech at the convention. So let's work on this. That was their plan. And then also, Obama attacked Hillary from the left on foreign policy. And uh, there's a great piece at Mondo Weiss today explaining why, because Bernie sucks on foreign policy, and even though he's not as bad as Hillary, he's too much of a coward to attack her foreign policy, he's basically blown it and has been unable to uh, get the anti-war movement behind him, which would have really helped. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. Hey, I'm Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. And, uh, yeah, it's anti-war stuff, mostly. So, uh, hey, listen, uh, our old friend Daphne Eviatar, I saw her on the Twitter this morning. And, uh, I agree with her. She said, uh, she was interested in this article, although she disagrees with the last part where he says, uh, they should continue with those that they're going to put on trial. They should go ahead and continue with that she says that's wrong but anyway still read the article so i did and i agree with her that that's the only wrong part of it so basically the deal is it goes like this congress has passed some laws i guess amendments to appropriations bills that obama had to sign that restrict him from moving guantanamo prisoners to the united states so um then, of course, the thing of it is, is he's the commander-in-chief. So he can tell those military officers to move where he wants them to move. And they have to say, sir, yes, sir. If he tells them, close that prison down, tear it down, and put those guys on boats and send them to Miami, he's the president. Now, the Congress could impeach him, and I guess... If he was really impeached and there was a trial in the Senate, then maybe the the generals would wait to see what would happen. Uh, but basically, he has the authority to do that. But it is also true that he signed laws that says that he can't. So, yeah, I don't know. 
he can start a war with Libya twice. Two different wars with Libya he can start without asking anybody. But close Guantanamo Bay, oh yeah, no man, Congress and the rule of law, Article 1, and this and that. So, here's a guy named Ken, I guess, Good, G-U-D-E, Ken Good, and he's in Politico.com, is it Politico Magazine? I don't know. Anyway, the right way to close Guantanamo, he says. And what he says is, you take all the guys who are already cleared from release, and you release them. Make deals with other countries, send them off to those countries. The ones who are not yet cleared for release, speed up the review process. Get as many people cleared as you can, and then go ahead and send them. The ones who can't be cleared for release, but actually you say are dangerous terrorists and whatever, well then, send them to countries where they're from, where you claim they committed crimes, and let them be prosecuted there. He doesn't say rendition them to be tortured, although, you know, he might have said, he might have brought that up to say that would be something to avoid. But if you can find places where these guys could be tried in other countries for crimes that they committed there, and I think, you know, he brings up um, guys who uh, supposedly did the attack in Bali. We'll turn them over to the Australians, let them prosecute them. Right, Not throw them in military prison, but just prosecute them for killing Australians there or whatever. They'll claim that jurisdiction and do it, something like that. And anyway, he's just saying, here's how to whittle the numbers down so that there's hardly anybody left in there. And then when it comes down to it, then you got nobody left except Ramsey bin al-Sheib and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. And then he says, and they're you know, closest associates, and he says, well, you know, they should be tried there, continue on with the trials there. But then at that point... Guantanamo becomes nothing but a court system and no longer a prison. And so, you know, that's pretty damn close to closing it down, but without violating the law and without, you know, taking a huge political hit on the side of the Democrats for uh, violating the law and whatever, whatever. Of course, all this is because Obama didn't just close the damn prison down with the power that he did have to close it down in his first year. He had plenty of congressmen willing to work with him on it. I'm pretty sure this was a shot called by Rahm Emanuel, his chief of staff. Oh, the Guantanamo thing? Yeah, no, don't do that. And so, you know, here it sits. And, you know, it took, I think it took a couple of years before they drummed up the Oh, conservatives are afraid of having terrorists in our supermax prisons. What if they use their super magic terrorist powers to break out of the supermax? Yeah, okay. We're, we're all terrified. Yeah, the national government has no ability to control dangerous people because they don't employ any dangerous people of their own, I guess. Uh, Ramsey Youssef, Ted Kaczynski, sitting in the... In the Supermax in Florence, Colorado right now? Never mind them. Every entrapped terrorist that uh, FBI informant ever tricked into saying he loved Osama into open microphone? They're all sitting in prison. They didn't have to be renditioned anywhere. Tortured. Other than Almari, they ended up letting him go. He's in, Even Almari's in prison now, right? Or did they let Almari go finally? 
guess he did his time. I forgot. Anyway, point being that Obama could at least at this point, due to his failure to close Guantanamo this whole time, uh, it's still there. And it's still the world's worst travesty. It's one that George W. Bush came out for closing back when he was still the president himself. Said it should be closed. Robert Gates and Colin Powell and all the Republican heroes and whatever said it should be closed. And here it still is. Well, this article in Politico says, hey, Obama could at least do a hell of a lot of it without coming into that real conflict with Congress. So it is what it is. I guess we'll see whether he does anything. And then there's this. Former interrogators urge presidential candidates to reject torture. And this is by our friend Jeff Stein writing in Newsweek. And um, he says a group of former CIA, FBI, DEA, and military intelligence officials is urging presidential candidates to reject torture as an interrogation tool. Well, they must all be a bunch of sissies and pacifists, I guess, huh? These former CIA, FBI, DEA, and military intelligence officials urging presidential candidates to reject torture as an interrogation tool. Torture is not only illegal and immoral, it is counterproductive, the official said in an open letter to candidates released Wednesday by Human Rights First, which I think that's Daphne Eviatar, actually. Uh, now that I think about it. It tends to produce unreliable information because it degrades a detainee's ability to recall and transmit information, undermines trust in the interrogator, and often prompts a detainee to relay false information that he believes the interrogator wants to hear, wrote the interrogators. It also increases the risk that our troops will be tortured, sorry, that our troops will be tortured, hinders cooperation with allies, alienates populations who support the United States' needs in the struggle against terrorism, and provides a propaganda tool for extremists who wish to do us harm. Yeah, and it turns us, uh, the entire right half of American civilization, into a bunch of torture-mongering barbarians. Because, hey, my political heroes say I'm supposed to, so, sir, yes, sir, barbarism it is. Idiots. The group includes Frank Anderson, a former chief of CIA operations in the Middle East and South Asia, and Michael Rolintz, who heads the FBI's in International Terrorism Operations Section in the run-up to the September 11th attacks. So anyway, it goes on like that. And um, Oh, no, it, uh, here's the point. is They quote John Rizzo who is a former torture lawyer at the CIA. He said the former top lawyer during the torture regime, quote, I think certainly many of those who were connected to the EIT program, that is torturing people to death, some, well, sometimes to death, a program over its six years span, and hundreds are still there at the CIA, would resign or retire rather than have to go down that perilous road again. This, of course, is all in the context of Donald Trump saying he'd bring back a hell of a lot worse than just drowning people to the brink of death over and over again. He would get serious. He's the president, which is virtually assured 
you hate government, one of them libertarian types, or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers. Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. All right, so um, Syria. We talked last week about Nancy Youssef's article in uh, The Daily Beast about how the Bada Brigade and Asseb al-Haq and other Shiite militias from Iraq that USA has been allied with in their war against the Sunnis ever since 2003, and including just recently helped them retake Ramadi a month and a half ago from the Islamic State, were in Syria fighting, of course, on the side of Assad and Hezbollah and Russia against the American, Turkish, and Saudi and Israeli and Qatari-backed jihadist terrorists. Funny that. Well, now, throw in the Kurds. Mike Giglio at BuzzFeed News has this article, America is in a proxy war with itself in Syria. God help the Syrians. Confusion in the Obama administration's Syria policy is playing out on the ground as U.S.-backed groups begin battling each other. And now, so this isn't even about the Bada Brigade at all. This isn't even about Iraqi Shiite militias. This is about, uh, well, Istanbul. American proxies are now at war with each other in Syria. Officials with Syrian rebel battalions that received covert backing from one arm of the U.S. government told BuzzFeed News they've recently began fighting rival rebels supported by another arm of the U.S. government. The infighting, a means CIA-backed jihadist versus military-backed Kurds. That's what he's saying. He should say it clearly right there in the second paragraph. But anyway. The infighting between American proxies is the latest setback for the Obama administration's Syria policy and lays bare its contradictions as violence in the country gets worse. The confusion is playing out on the battlefield, with the U.S. effectively engaged in a proxy war with itself. It's very strange, and I cannot understand it, said Ahmed Othman, the commander of the U.S.-backed rebel battalion Furqa al-Sultan Murad who said he had come under attack from U.S.-backed Kurdish militants in Aleppo this week. Furqa al-Sutan Murad receives weapons from the U.S. and his allies as part of a covert program overseen by the CIA that aids rebel groups struggling to overthrow the government of Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, according to rebel officials and analysts tracking the conflict. The Kurdish militants, on the other hand, receive weapons and support from the Pentagon as part of U.S. efforts to fight ISIS, known as the People's Protection Units, or YPG, 
They are the centerpiece of the Obama administration's strategy against the extremists in Syria and coordinate regularly with U.S. airstrikes. Yet as Assad and his Russian allies have routed rebels around Aleppo in recent weeks, rolling back Islamist factions and moderate U.S. allies alike, there ain't nothing moderate about them. Give me a break. Um, they're just the front groups for all this, or basically. As aid groups warn of humanitarian catastrophe, the YPG has seized the opportunity to take ground from these groups, too. In the face of public projections from U.S. officials and reportedly backed by Russian airstrikes, the YPG has overrun key villages in the northern provinces of Aleppo and Idlib. It now threatens the town of Azaz on the border of Turkey, through which rebel groups have long received crucial supplies. Over the weekend, Turkey began shelling YPG positions around Azaz in response. Azaz in response raising another difficult scenario for the U.S. in which its proxy is under assault from its NATO ally. Yet as America has looked on, see, I don't think he says in here too, does he? That the Russians are also backing the Kurds. That doesn't get mentioned that the U.S. and Russia are both backing the YPG. And I don't guess that they have Russian special forces embedded with them like they have American ones, but I don't know. In the face of public objections from U.S. officials and reportedly backed by Russian airstrikes, the YPG has overrun key villages in the northern provinces of Aleppo and Idlib. Uh, oh, I already said that, sorry. Yet as, Americans, uh, yet as America's looked on while Russia and Syria target its so-called moderate rebel partners, it has failed to stop the YPG from attacking them too. Well, that is a major problem, said the guy from WINEP, the Israeli front group in Washington, D.C. It's not just that it's a nonsense policy. It's that we're losing influence so rapidly that to the Russians that people just aren't listening to us anymore. Yeah, he's just assuming uh, what's being said to the YPG anyway. Othman. Uh, and, of course, you see the spin on that. Those dastardly Russians helping the YPG out from under us instead of, yes, see, there's some common ground here where we're both backing the Kurds against the Islamic State, which is great, which they could say. I'm not saying that I would agree with that, but I'm just saying you can see their spin on, uh, you know, refusing to define help as help even when it comes, uh, unless it's their plan, which the Russians coming around is not. Othman, the Furka al-Sultan Murad commander, said the YPG tried to seize two areas of Aleppo under his control, resulting in firefights that left casualties on both sides. He had captured seven YPG fighters and was holding them prisoner, he added. Othman's group receives weapons from the U.S. and its allies, including tow anti-tank missiles, he said and fights Assad as well as ISIS. The aid is part of a long-running CIA effort approved by Congress and coordinated from an operations room in Turkey, with participation from international allies of the rebellion such as Saudi Arabia. Othman said he was in regular contact with his American handlers about problems on the ground. And see, here's the thing he won't just come out and say. that The largest group that America works with here is Arar al-Sham, which was founded by al-Qaeda leaders and is just another name for al-Qaeda. They still take their orders from Ayman al-Zawahiri, and they still fight on a regular basis side by side 
with the al-Nusra front who they arm with our money and guns. It's not even, it's a half a step removed, not even a half a step removed from direct aid and comfort to the enemies of the American people by our CIA. Uh, it's not even plausible deniability at all. It's not even deniability of an implausible nature. It's just treason. And it's right there in front of your face. Anyway, I love the quote here where he says, The Americans must stop the YPG. That's the Kurds. They must tell them, You're attacking groups that we support just like we support you. They're just watching. I don't understand U.S. politics. <laughs> Yep, sucks to be a backstabbed terrorist in the employ of the CIA, huh? Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at darrenscoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. Darren'sCoffee.com. Use promo code Scott and you get free shipping. Darren'sCoffee.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. So, um, I'm looking at Charles Lister's Twitter feed here. He's the uh, resident ISIS so-called, at least, expert at the Brookings Institution, which is, of course, a front for the Qataris and the Israelis at this point. I don't know if you can call it anything but that. Money talks. He says uh, here, three hours ago, Charles Lister tweeted out, the U.S. and Russia have agreed on a ceasefire deal for Syria to begin at zero o'clock. On 27 February, in five days, Javad al-Nusra excluded from the agreement. I guess that's explicitly a complaint of his. Expect a major intensification in the fighting this week. So, oh, and expect uh, al-Nusra to embed itself further into the main front lines. Important to note, he says... That Assad regime, Russia, Iran, and YPG all label Syria's opposition as exclusively Arar al-Sham, Nusra, and ISIS. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is important to note. Um, how in the world... You know what? I think I asked um, Patrick Coburn this. I asked somebody else this too, and I, don't, I think I might ask Gareth Porter this. I guess this is a real test. Maybe this is real proof after the fact. We'll see just how much control America has over the groups they've been supporting here. But when Russia says, listen, I will get the Syrian government and, you know, Iran and Hezbollah to cease fire, that's believable to me. Right? Lavrov calls uh, Assad or Assad's men and says, here's what we're doing. They say... He'll click, yes, sir, thanks for saving our ass. Russia's calling the shots in Damascus, uh, you know, whichever ones they feel like calling anyway. I I don't question that. I mean, if there's 
Obviously, there's some wrinkles there, whatever. I don't know how well the Russians get along with Nasrallah, for example, but seems pretty much like they can forge their consensus on their side of the fight. My point is, who's in charge on the jihadist side other than the jihadists, you know? You can set these guys free in the field, give them, you know, some food and some money and some guns and uh, some training and set them free, but then how do you keep telling them what to do? It's not that easy. I paid you a lot of money, yeah? So you think that gives you power over me? It doesn't, they all say. And continue their suicide attacks. So, Arar al-Sham, are they moderate or are they nothing but al-Nusra? It's times like these when major powers are trying to work out ceasefires that these little wrinkles become very important. <laughs> well, gee, they've been telling us all along that everybody except ISIS is moderate and... <clears throat> oh, Okay, sort of, kind of, I guess, but not really the Nusra Front. They're sort of not moderate, too. But any other jihadist group fighting Assad, yeah, they're all a bunch of moderates. Look how moderate they are. Yeah, they chop off their prisoners' heads, and yeah, they do suicide attacks against women and children. And yeah, they're absolutely, you know, Arar al-Sham, again, founded by uh, al-Qaeda's original group. Uh, this is, they're exactly the same thing. But anyway, we we call them the moderates. Who's going to make them cease fire? And then what's supposed to happen? If the al-Nusra Front and the Islamic State aren't included in the ceasefire and the negotiations, which, okay, I mean, that makes sense. What are you going to do? Bring al-Qaeda to Switzerland <laughs> and just sit down at a table with them? Uh, yeah, that probably isn't a good idea. <laughs> you probably couldn't get through airport security on the way. But then, so, they think they're going to turn Arar al-Sham against the al-Nusra front when they're nothing but the same damn thing and have been fighting against, uh, alongside each other this whole time? Where these mythical moderate groups basically just serve as the, you know, arms fencing operations for the CIA? CIA guy says, hey, you can't call yourself al-Nusra and get guns from me. So come back tomorrow and call yourself some other name. I'll give you all the guns you want. And all those guns go right to Al-Nusra anyway. Hell, Mother Jones had a great piece of that back, I think, in 2012. Here's what it means to be a vetted rebel by the CIA, or here's what vetted means, something like that. And it's, of course, a joke. They don't know who these people are. Bob Bear, who I don't trust, and I don't know, I guess the wife likes him. But um, one thing is a fact that he knows Syria. And I remember him back years ago on CNN saying, nobody in the CIA knows anything about Syria. They don't have anybody on the ground there to tell them any real information. They know what they're being told by people that they can't, you know, they can't confirm nothing. And he's the kind of guy who, back when he was CIA, actually knew Syria. And he's here to tell you that <laughs> there ain't nobody who replaced him in that job, you know. That sounded believable enough. I won't buy everything Bob Bear says, but that sounded about right. Well, you know, the Saudis assure us that everything's going to be great. Yeah, anyway. Um, so this one is a uh, question of the Nusra Front. That is, again, Al-Qaeda in Syria. Sworn loyal diamond. I'll here. The butcher in New York City. 
Question of Nusra Front, likely to bedevil Syrian ceasefire talks by Hannah Alam at McClatchy Newspapers. After four years of carnage in Syria, the bar for good news is so low that the word ceasefire sounded encouraging when John Kerry announced early Friday in Germany that the world powers had reached an agreement intended to pause fighting in the conflict. Within a day, however, professional observers of the war had concluded that the development is fragile at best with make-or-break issues left unaddressed, starting with whether both the Syrian government and the rebels would even accept the terms. Supposing it makes it past the basic hurdle, the agreement then faces an even tougher challenge, the determination of which fighting groups are terrorists and which are acceptable partners to implement the deal, which doesn't cover terrorist groups. A task force co-chaired by Kerry and Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is expected to tackle that issue, a perennial dispute that threatens the viability of the peace talks. The, quote, cessation of hostilities deal hammered out in Munich under U.N. auspices excludes the Islamic State and al-Qaeda's Nusra Front by name. While the Islamic State has few friends among rebel, rebel factions, the Nusra question is more complicated, giving the group's entrenchment in eight of the nine areas rebels control and its record of cooperation with Western-backed rebels. You see how they do that? And I, I like Hannah Alam. She's a good journalist. But that's Western cooperation with Al-Qaeda-backed rebels. You see that? Al-Qaeda's cooperation with U.S.-backed rebels means treason in D.C. With a little bit of euphemism on it. The Nusra Front, known in Arabic as Jabhat al-Nusra, operates in... <clears throat> well, if you're going to really translate it, then tell me what it is in English. What does Nusra mean? They used to say it meant the Association of Helpers, or something like that, which, doesn't that sound like the Royal Institute of International Affairs? I'm confused. <laughs> it was something like that, wasn't it? The the group of volunteers, maybe, something. Anyway. The cessation of hostility, oh no, the Nusra Front, known in Arabic as Jabhat al-Nusra, operates in or has access to virtually every rebel-held area, and its leader has vowed to keep fighting the government of President Bashar al-Assad, no matter what peace plan foreign powers attempt to impose. The Munich Agreement doesn't stop Russia or the U.S., from that matter, from attacking Nusra positions. Yeah, well, with Nusra fighters scattered across so much territory, it's hard. so I guess... They're finally being forsook. Hey, Al Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com. All right, y'all. Oh, how time flies. It's almost the end of the show already. Now, um, I'm trying to get Jonathan Marshall on because he wrote this great thing about Kosovo. I want to cover that. And I invited Basevich on because he wrote this thing about the new nukes. They're going to spend a trillion, they say, so call it probably two and a half or three. 
trillion dollars on a whole new generation of hydrogen bombs. It's crazy. I mean, it's very rational, but insane too. Rational from the point of view of the nuclear weapons producers, I mean. They get to make money, that's all. Um, and then Vijay Prashad. I had him on one time, I forget about what, but now I want to interview him about Libya. Because apparently he seems to really know a thing or two about Libya. So that should be coming up. And then I mentioned uh, Nabot Samalich. I'm trying to get him on talk bad about America. I mean, to tell the truth about America's Ukraine policy, which is the same thing as talking bad about it. Um, and then Rupert Stone wrote a cool thing about torture. I'm trying to get a hold of him. So I bet tomorrow we'll have at least one or two of them. And then we'll see what happens after that this week. But so should have... Uh, some good ones lined up. Now, I have DPRK in my notes, but now I'm trying to remember. What was it about North Korea that I wanted to talk about? There was a North Korea story. What was it? North Korea. North Korea. Maybe it's up here. Oh, there it goes. Oh, yes. U.S. spurned North Korea proposed peace talks days before the nuclear test. U.S. demanded that any talks include North Korean denuclearization. <clears throat> hey, well, the button on my mic thing is busted. Yeah, I'm going to have to finally switch out this board. Or maybe just switch port my mic is plugged into. Anyway, here's the deal, man. Uh, Jason Ditz at news.antiwar.com. Sorry for clearing my throat in your ear. I tried to mute it, but my button was stuck. U.S. spurned North Korea proposed peace talks days before nuclear test. The U.S. State Department confirmed over the weekend, and this is uh, based on a New York Times story, that they had rejected a North Korean proposal for peace talks that was made just days before the nation's latest nuclear weapons test the latest in a long line of attempts aimed at ending the Korean War, technically still ongoing from 1950. The State Department attempted to spin their own rejection. I thought it was 52. Boy, am I stupid and ignorant. Really? Wouldn't it? Yeah. I don't know. The State Department attempted to spin their own rejection as a North Korean rejection, saying they demanded North Korea agree to nuclear disarmament as part of the talks on ending the war. Since the North Koreans have long insisted they want peace first and disarmament after, the U.S. is claiming that the North both proposed and rejected the talks. Analysts say it was unsurprising that North Korea didn't accept the counterproposal, as it believes the only leverage it has on proposing peace talks is its nuclear development, and doesn't want to give that up without assuring that a peace deal is coming along with it. The U.S., by contrast, has long insisted that it won't, quote, reward North Korea with peace while it continues to possess a nuclear weapons program. The view that being not in a state of war is a gift the U.S. can bestow only if it is placated, however, seems a recipe for keeping the war going for decades more. Yep. Yep. 
and boy, is he right about the spin on that New York Times article. The spin on the New York Times article is, you know, here the Obama administration was willing to talk with the North Koreans, but they wouldn't do it. But as Jason said, the facts read completely otherwise. The North Koreans proposed peace talks, and Obama told them to go to hell. And then they set off their fourth nuclear test. And you know, it's funny, man. Obama has that whole narrative going about him, aided and abetted by those um, same partisan politics I mentioned before, where liberals just ignore his record and conservatives refuse to praise him for it, you know, from their point of view. Um, and he has this, um, I don't know, this character he plays. No drama, Obama. Yeah, he could have done worse in Syria, but he was reluctant to, and this kind of thing. But look at what he's done in restarting the whole Cold War. Pushing for this whole new generation of nuclear weapons. Refusing, time and again, refusing to engage and deal with North Korea in any meaningful kind of way. And risking nuclear war with that regime. When... You know, I don't know. Pfeffer was on the show saying, well, it would be a big political risk. But, yeah, I don't think so. I think if the president makes peace and then gives a speech where he tells the American people, don't you want peace? You want risk of 35,000 American troops getting nuked on the Korean Peninsula? Or we want to work this thing out? That's what I thought. Republicans go to hell. The American people agree with me. Peace is preferable to endless Cold War. And especially now that George W. Bush pushed them out of the Non-Proliferation Treaty, out of their safeguards agreement, and two nuclear weapons. Somebody's got to try to fix this. But nope. Uh, instead, he'd rather keep this whole thing going. And, you know, it's funny, man, because you think about what a complete and utter and total disaster George W. Bush was. He was horrible on Russia, too, man. You know, he really got the, the Cold War started. But Obama could go down in history, you know, as the guy who, you know, well, I don't know. I guess if the conflict really comes to fruition, then there won't be any history told because everybody would be dead. But Obama should be remembered as just the absolute worst leader. Starting up the worst conflict in the history of humanity. The potential for full-scale war between the U.S. and Russia with their hydrogen bombs. With their thousands and thousands and thousands of hydrogen bombs. And not so much Russia's, but in, in this time around, America's military alliances with all of the European states. Uh, quite a few of which have American nuclear weapons stationed in them. The whole thing is insane. Obama didn't have to do this. It wasn't Putin that ruined the reset. It was the U.S. empire. And, um, you know, Syria policy is a huge part of it. But especially with the coup in Ukraine two years ago. Oh, wait, what's the date? The 22nd. It's the two-year anniversary right now. Of the coup d'etat of uh, January 21st and uh, the night of the 21st, the morning of the 22nd in Ukraine, where America 
overthrew the government there. Hey, what's the matter with the audio? What do you think? Uh, I think we're in play. Um, the the uh, Klitschko piece is obviously the complicated electron here, um, especially the announcement of him as deputy prime minister. And, and you've seen some of my notes on the troubles in the marriage right now. So we're trying to get a read really fast on where he is on this stuff. But I think your argument to him, which you'll need to make, I think that's the next phone call we want to set up, is exactly the one you made to, to Yachts. And I, I'm glad you sort of put him on the spot on where he fits in this scenario. And I'm very glad he said what he said in response. Good. So uh, I don't think Cleach should go into the government. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess you think what in terms of him not going into the government, just let him sort of stay out and do his political homework and stuff. I'm just thinking in terms of sort of the process moving ahead, we want to keep the moderate Democrats together. The problem is going to be Tony Boak and his guys. And, you know, I'm sure that's part of what Yanukovych is calculating on all of this. Um, I'm I, kinda... I, I, just, I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right. Okay, we're talking about yes, yeah, the, the current prime minister. This is them plotting the coup. Victoria Newland, Robert Kagan's wife, and Gregory Pyatt, the American ambassador to Ukraine, plotting the coup there. And Tannenbach, of course, being the leader of the social nationalists, Nazis. Happy anniversary.